All right, let us get into the word. We are in 1 Corinthians. We're going to cover chapters 5, 6, and 7 this morning. Just as last week, the first four chapters were focused on uh, one subject matter. Um, these three chapters also kind of fit into a block, so we'll, we'll churn through a lot of material this morning. But before, before we read, before we teach, before we listen to his voice, let's go to God in prayer again. So Father, we do, we come running to you in boldness. We come to you, Jesus, to sit at your feet and to listen. We lay aside all of our work, all of our responsibilities, all of our pressures, those things, Lord, that you've given to us to do in your name and for your name's sake alone. We just come in here, Lord, to sit. We want to see you, Jesus. We want to hear your voice. We want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to live for you. We want to be changed and transformed by you. So we give you thanks for this place. We give you thanks for this time, this moment. Let your will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So remember why we're here in 1 Corinthians. We're really going through the book of Acts, but as Paul comes into Corinth, he's preaching the name of Jesus in that community. He ends up staying there for a year and a half. He's left Corinth. This is his second letter that he's written back to them. In the first six chapters, he is addressing the things that he has heard about their conduct, about their behavior. And then in the rest of the letter, he is addressing uh, topics that they have written to him about, that they have questions. I bring this up because as we sit in the context, the context this morning, if we do not understand the culture about what we're reading, this is one of those occasions where it's really easy to misinterpret and misapply what Paul is saying. So for Corinth, Corinth, there's many parallels that we can draw between Corinth and our own culture. This is a, a letter of encouragement, a letter of a lot of practical advice of what does it look like for you and I to live in the midst of a culture which we all, every single human being lives in the context of its culture. And as we bend our knee to Jesus and who he is and the message of the gospel, we are told that he removes us from the kingdoms, the nations, and the cultures in which we live, and he places us into his kingdom, into the kingdom of heaven. So that we are no longer citizens of these nations, we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's important because often when, regardless of what time, what place, what season, what government structure, the church that is in the midst of that community is living in the midst of all those pressures of that culture. So Corinth is living in the midst of its cultural pressures. We live in the midst of our cultural pressures. So what does it mean? What does it look like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit based upon the work of Jesus Christ? That's what this letter is dealing with. So the conduct of the Corinthian church, these are believers. They are saved. They are in heaven right now. Paul is addressing some conduct that's out of line, and it's out of line because we are all believers who have come out of our cultures, and when we come out of our cultures, we bring into the church our personalities, our perspectives, our backgrounds, and a lot of those things can bleed into the culture of the church when the message of the cross, the message of the gospel is you're new. 
You were not that old person. You were no longer ruled and reigned by Satan. You were no longer ruled and reigned by any other king. You, ha- you were not the subject of any other authority other than Jesus. Remember that. And that's all Paul is doing, is reminding them of who they are in Christ, reminding them of the message of the gospel, the message of the cross. So again, in this community, the different messages are creeping up, different opinions. And those different opinions, those different factions, people are falling in and settling into, you know, that whole idea of birds of a feather flock together. Well, I agree with this perspective. And they're lifting up those perspectives against the name of Jesus. So they're lifting up man's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. So that was the first four chapters. Now, we're going to step into... Um, more mature subject matter. I commit to you that I'll keep everything PG and use the exact words that are in here, assuming that everybody knows the definition of these things. If you have questions later on, come and ask, and we'll deal with that. But we have less mature individuals in the room this morning, so to you parents, I commit to you that I'll keep it biblical. So, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality has not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And this is stepmom, so we don't know if dad has died and son has, now has a relationship with his stepmom. Regardless, this behavior, it's not even something that's named acceptable, culturally lawful in, in Corinth, which again, Rome is the one whose laws dominate this time and this place. That being said, um, Rome is a very immoral culture. Nero is the Caesar at this point. Nero, later on in his life, a couple years before he passes away, he was actually married to another man, and in that ceremony, this is all in historical documents, Nero took the position of bride. So when he's sitting there talking about this behavior that's going on in the church, this is something that even Rome itself doesn't accept this behavior, and Rome accepts a lot of really outlandish not just outlandish, but wicked behavior. So, major issue in the church, right? And why? So again, as we sit in this cultural context, there is in Jesus, there is liberty, there is freedom. And the issues of that liberty and freedom is that they are using that liberty in Christ to excuse and justify sinful behavior. Not just to excuse and justify it, listen to what Paul says. He says, and you are puffed up. You're actually arrogant and have not rather mourned, grieved. That he who has done this deed might be taken away, might be excluded from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged, I've already condemned, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name, listen to the authority again, not worldly authority, we are subject to the name of Jesus. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for 
the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here there's this sinful circumstance that's going on in the church. So we're not talking about outside culture. We're talking about the body of Christ and who it is that we are subject to in the body of Christ. In this, there's a behavior going on that it's not just being accepted. There's actually an arrogance and a pride about it of look how accepting we are. Look at the freedom that we have in Jesus. And Paul says, hold up. You should be grieving over this. Not boasting in it. And in the name of Jesus, in the name of his authority, put that, not just that individual, yes, but that behavior, take it away, exclude it. And again, this is where we have to sit in the culture. So when we gather together, in this culture, when you gather together, I mean, it, you, you're being mixed, you're in agreement, you're fellowshipping, you're participating. That's exactly what we're doing here. And he's saying that those individuals who are doing exactly what Jesus says not to do, that ought to be excluded because that belongs outside That's what we were taken out of. So what we were taken out of, don't bring it into the community. And the purpose is why? Satan is the ruler of all that's on the outside. So those who desire to remain subject to the ruler who is on the outside and not remain subject to Jesus, who is Lord of the church, exclude them. Let them be out there for the purpose of repentance so that the flesh, so that the the ideas of their own minds, their own heart, let those things be, and again, in in this context is if one of you was having a sin issue, regardless of what it is, and the church comes and you're not repentant and we ask you, we don't want you here to attend and participate in fellowship any longer because you're bending the knee to somebody on the outside. You're not bending the knee to the Lord. Some individuals are going to shake the fist and say, whatever, forget you. I'm going to go find a church that's in agreement with me. Or the, the heart here is that that individual would live in shame and that that shame, that that guilt, that the, the, it would be that prodigal individual that wakes up in the pigsty and says, I need to return. I need to be cleansed. That's the purpose of turning somebody on the outside for the destruction of the flesh so that ultimately the individual would be saved, that there would be repentance and restoration is what the heart of this passage is. Now, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this individual that, we're, that Paul is addressing here, the church did what Paul asked them to do. They put this man outside the church. But Paul had to write the church and say, enough is enough. The man is repentant. Restore him back into fellowship. Again, this, this to me, it's, it's, it's a beautiful testimony of the gospel. There is no sin so great that we cannot repent from, turn away from, and come to Jesus for cleansing. And not just as an individual, but as a community. There is no sin that any one of you could do against the Lord and against this body where 
if you demonstrated genuine repentance to Jesus, that you should not be fully restored into the community. That's what forgiveness is. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him seven times? No. Seven times. I keep forgiving. Constant. Beautiful testimony of the message of the cross. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you are truly, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, but with the leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that's what I named just this morning's message, just overall context. We are a new lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The idea of leaven, it's yeast and bread. It is that which causes the bread to rise and the imagery that we have here, something that is rising and swelling. It's that arrogance, it's being puffed up. Christ being our Passover, the Passover feast in Exodus 12 and leading into the feast of unleavened bread, all of the leaven was to be removed from the household. Again, all the imagery that's going on there, but this, this old nature, the old man, the old woman, the old behaviors, the old system which we were called out of, that stuff, that will permeate through the entire body. And the idea is that we are already unleavened in Christ. All of us. Even this man that, that needs to be turned out. As a believer, he is unleavened. But he's practicing the old things, and those old things need to be dealt with. The Holy Spirit needs to deal with those things. The community needs, needs to deal with those things. But this reality, you already are a new lump of dough. Unleavened. Free from sin. Permeated by Jesus and his nature and his character. Not with this leaven, the words there for malice and wickedness. Two different words in the Greek for evil. The first one, malice, is dealing with evil, just evil in general. The second one, wickedness. It's that evil that's not satisfied with its own evil, but wants to bring everybody into its evil with it. Wants to take down everybody else. That would be that ultimate definition of who Satan is as the adversary. Sincerity and truth being the contrast to that. I wrote to you, verse 9, in my epistle. So here's a letter that we don't know about. Uh, the Lord did not preserve it. But the first letter that he wrote to Corinthians, he wrote to them in the epistle, not to keep company, not to mingle, not to mix together with sexually immoral people. And he's given some clarity here. Yet, I didn't, I didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous, the greedies, or with the extortioners, those who are grasping and robbing and taking, or with idolaters, since you would have need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company, not to mix together, not to fellowship with anyone named, titled a brother or sister 
who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And lots of uh, the cultural imagery that's going on here. For what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Again, just this reality of he has called us in him to be salt and light to the world. We are supposed to be out in this world interacting with the sexually immoral, the drunkards, the extortioners. Every sin, every vice that you can list, we are there to be salt and light with the message of the cross so that people can hear and that as they hear, they're going to be convicted by the Lord and they're going to bend the knee and respond to Jesus. We are supposed to be out there, but that's the outside. So when the message of the cross is proclaimed on the outside and somebody believes, they're no longer on the outside, they're on the inside. They have a new heart. They're a new lump. It's a new culture. It's a new king. It's all about Jesus, period. So when it comes to this community, who's, who has the right? Who has the authority? Who has the power? It's Jesus. We subject ourselves to him. And as we are on the inside, all of us together bend the knee to Jesus. And this is how and why we become of the same mind. We are of one mind. We are of one spirit. We have one Lord. There is one gospel. There is one baptism. We are to be here in unity. So as we are together in unity, somebody who is identifying their life, and again, this isn't just stumbling in sin or stumbling with things in life. This is somebody who is stuck in this and okay in this, and I have the liberty to do this. That's the heart that we're talking about. As we have those one-on-one conversations and somebody wants to stick to that, don't mix with them. Don't mingle with them. Let the Lord deal with them. Let the world deal with them. Let them be convicted by their sin until they repent. And in that repentance, Jesus will restore them. And the church will be there with open arms and love. Verse six, or chapter 6, now another issue that's going on. You were so bold. Dare any of you having a matter, a legal matter against another, go to law. Literally, this is going to be judged. Do you go to be judged before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So, again, this is, this is a cultural thing. This is different than how we process in our own culture, but this is uh, dealing with civil matters, not criminal matters, because again, uh, the government, the government of Rome, the government of Corinth, Romans 13 tells us that God has given governments to deal with criminal behavior here. These are, these are civil issues, civil conflicts. And Paul is bringing up that he's heard that they are going, you know, the legal issues, the civil matters, they're going outside the church to unrighteous individuals to look for their judgment rather than, can't the church deal with these things? Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The reality of that is that oneness that we have with Jesus co-heirs with Jesus. And in the world, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels? I believe that to be the, the fallen rebellious angels. 
How much more the things that pertain to this life, to everyday matters. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you point those who are least esteemed by the church to judge, literally those things that are utterly despised, are you appointing those on the outside? The culture that you have left, you're actually going to go out to that culture and to those laws and subject yourself to what you despise? You're going you're gonna to bend the knee to that in, in that judgment? Again, this is, this is all for them to be in fact. No! So, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so? That there is not a wise man among you. Remember earlier, just immediate prior context. They're puffed up in all of their wisdom. Is there not a wise man among you? Not even one? Who has the power to judge, to have distinction and discernment between his brethren? But brother goes to judgment against brother, and that before unbelievers. Verse 7, now therefore, it is already an utter failure. For you to go to judgment against one another. And this is right here. This is how radical the message of the cross is. This is how radical the teachings of Jesus are. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Literally, why don't you rather accept injustice rather than going to judgment against your brother and your sister? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated, be deprived, be robbed? What do you think of that statement? So, Robert, you just cheated Hyung. Can't say sorry yet, you're unrepentant right now. But this is, but this is the context. Robert, some, some business dealing has cheated Hyung. Here, Paul's instructions to Hyung is, Hyung, let yourself be cheated. Let yourself be robbed. Let Jesus deal with Robert. How much faith does that take and trust in Jesus as judge, as avenger? So this is getting into the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus tells you, when somebody slaps you on the right side of your face, to turn the left cheek to them also. Now in that description, that's not, it's not literal, right? In the same teaching there on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, if your right eye sins against you, pluck it out. If your right hand sins against you, cut it off. If somebody slaps you on the face, give them the other side. It's all, he's giving a teaching and instruction in regards to what the heart attitude ought to be. Because otherwise, we, every single one of us would be eyeless and handless, right? But this is how radical the teaching, this is how astonishing the teaching of Jesus is. Even in the church, he is saying, Paul is saying here, lined up with the teaching of Jesus, it's better to let yourself just be cheated and to be robbed and to let Jesus deal with that person and for you to bend the knee to Jesus, trusting that he will provide for you and that he will be your avenger. So much of the Old Testament, go sit with Habakkuk, sitting there complaining not just on the, you know, the, the sins of the world, but we can complain about the sins that we see within the church. 
And so often we want to chatter and let our opinions be known and let ourselves be puffed up and why we know everything and why this person is wrong. And again, the call of the gospel a lot of times is to be silent. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have a conversation. That doesn't mean that Hyung doesn't grab another brother and go and address Robert together like, hey, what's going on? But if it comes to that point, the community... Put Robert on the outside, let him be shamed, let him repent to the Lord, and let him come back and not just be restored to the Lord, but be restored to Hyung and be restored to the whole community. And this, again, this is, we all hit heads with each other. This is just human life. And here's some really powerful and practical instructions. Verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Again, he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about our interactions as brothers and sisters. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That there is the testimony of the message of the cross. That there is the testimony of our lives. Such were some of us. No sins elevated over and against another. There's a whole list right there. Such were, past tense, some of you. No longer. You were washed. All the filth washed away clean. You were sanctified. You have been set apart as devoted to God. You have been justified. Legal declaration you have no sin. You are in right standing with the God who created the heavens and the earth in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, amen. That is an awesome statement. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. And this is one of these, um, more than likely the commentators think and understand as Paul is writing this, that this is what he's teaching as he goes from community to community. As we come into the body of Christ, all things are possible for you. Even in these like lists of sins, and, this is, and again, look at what he's talking about. All things are lawful or possible for me, but all things are not helpful. They're not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And this is that the authority of Jesus, his authority to rule us, his right to rule us, that's what the word is. I will not be brought under the rights of anybody else other than Jesus. Verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. This is a, a saying in this culture, like a, it's raining cats and dogs outside that they'd all immediately understand. And the idea is that your body is hungry, your stomach says that you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. 
But it's a euphemism in this culture to say, just like your stomach is hungry, so you satisfy that by eating. So if you have a sexual appetite, then you go and satisfy that. That's what is being discussed here. And he says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. I love this. this is something that I have taught my kids from day one. You belong to Jesus. Your body is Jesus. Your body is your future spouses. God created you for himself. Perfectly. We are a new lump in him. Verse 15, do you not know that, I, that your bodies, again, even in all this, there's lots of discussion here with the body. It's being drawn into the imagery of the church also, so individual and corporate. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Creating Eve for Adam and Adam for Eve. One flesh as husband and wife, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee, the imperative, flee sexual immorality. Again, this is one of the ideas that there's a lot of times where there can be some gray issues in life. There can be some, you know, if this is the line right here, often we want to walk really close to the line. If this is the line of sexual immorality, the Bible's instruction for us is to run away, to flee. Don't stand there and abide in the temptation. Don't sit there and try and, you know, test the waters and those kinds of things. When it comes to this particular sin, consistent testimony through the word of God is run away from it. Flee, run, change the mind, get out of it, get away as quick as you can. Flee sexual immorality. Why? For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and you are not your own? This is this whole idea of a new lump. You are not your own. There has been a change of ownership in your life. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Another powerful statement here, and this is just... Um, it's for all of our minds to remember and all of our lives. It's for us to remember as a community. We are not our own. We have had a change in ownership. Satan does not own me. This world does not own me. I do not own me. I was bought with the price of the Son of God. His body, his blood. I am his. He is mine. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, chapter 7, he's shifting from, away from conduct into questions that they directly asked him. Now concerning the things that you wrote to me. 
This is what they said. So in a, where he was saying, all things are lawful for me, all things are possible for me. This is a very libertine slogan, now a very ascetic slogan. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So this is quoting from their letter. So the Corinthians in the church, as they are lifting up the wisdom of different teachers, there are teachers in their community that are saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this isn't just single people and saying not getting married. They're also talking about married people. Because they're, in this teaching, there's something holy about abstaining from all sexual behavior. So there's those in this community that are saying that it's good for husbands and wives not to touch each other. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, favor, goodwill. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority, right, over her own body. The husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's mutual relationship and marriage. Do not deprive, do not rob, do not cheat one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, with permission, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were as even as myself, stating being single. But each one has his own gift, his own grace gift from God, one in this matter and that and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, in this, he's he's dealing with and addressing a very direct question, a very direct teaching. There are those in the community saying that it's holy and it's good for a man not to touch a woman, whether this is uh, before marriage or even in the midst of marriage. And as he's dealing with the message in the context of just sexual behavior in the community, singleness and abstinence go together and marriage and sex go together. Marriage and abstinence do not go together unless for a time in mutual harmony and consent in the discussion between husband and wife and what they have going on, just like singleness and sex do not go together. So this is, he's bringing clarity to the information that's being, again, taught in their community. Verse 10, I know I'm running through this fast, but it's a lot of information. Now, to the married, I command, so this is to... This is to married individuals where both husband and wife are believers. So the, the next question, what about married people? Not I, but the Lord. This is God's commands. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And you all probably already know, or you can go sit in Jesus' direct teaching on the subject matter of divorce. Verse 12. But to the rest, 
I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, so now you have an intermixed couple, and she is willing, she agrees to dwell, to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And I love this. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But, this is the emphasis here, God has called us, summoned us, to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Why I love this section is there is a difference between sanctification and salvation. So when he's saying that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife, the idea is that The teaching in the church is you have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband or vice versa. And there are some in the church that are saying it's good for the believer to leave. Get out of that marriage. Get out of that relationship. And Paul is saying no. Don't you know that the the unbeliever does not defile the believer? I think that that's awesome. The world cannot defile us. Now, we just sat in earlier, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We can let sin come in our lives and in the community, and it can permeate through the whole community. And we can allow ourselves to be defiled. But here the instruction is the unbelieving spouse does not make the believing spouse unholy. Rather, you are setting them apart in their life to the Lord. You are going to be salt and light and testament. How do you know that over time, that through your chaste behavior, through your submission to Jesus, through your conversations that you're going to have in that household, and that unbeliever is willing to continue to love you and abide with you, how do you know that that person will not end up being saved? And that unbeliever does not make your children unholy and unclean. You, believer, You have the opportunity to raise up that child to bend the knee to Jesus. You, as believers, you you have a sanctifying influence amongst those around you. Our power in Jesus is greater than the defiling power of Satan. Can we all say amen to that? Because so often we as believers, we think that, oh, the world is so evil and it's so dark and it's making me icky and I need to take a shower. It's the exact opposite. As we travel through this world, we are told that we are diffusing the fragrance of Christ. Now to some, you reek like death. But to those who are listening, to those that, are, that the Holy Spirit is working on, the beautiful fragrance of Christ. Verse 17, but as God has distributed a portion to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. I arrange all the churches in the same manner. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God. You love Jesus, you're going to get to know Jesus, 
and you're going to keep his commandments through his power in your life. And again, this isn't keeping his commandments so that you can earn your own righteousness. It's from the position of his righteousness in your life in which we can keep his commandments. That's what matters. Verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Again, cultural context here. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Do not subject yourselves to the authority of man, but to the authority of Jesus alone. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. And this, this overall context, the teaching here, um, and, the, and the questions that are being asked, is Jesus knew exactly who you were and where you were when he summoned you to himself. And as you bend the knee to Jesus, you are bending the knee to his sovereign authority of the circumstances of your life. And whatever that is, subject yourself to him, to his love, to his grace, to his power. This doesn't mean you subject yourself to the abuse of others and all these kinds of things. You know, we don't want to misapply this. But this is, this statement, over, its overarching emphasis is trust your life with Jesus. Whatever your context is, trust yourself to him. Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment. I give my opinion as one whom the Lord, in his mercy, has made trustworthy. I suppose, I think, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress, the present necessity that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loose. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble, affliction in the flesh, but I would spare you. And all the married people say, Amen. There's not a single marriage in here that has not had affliction and trouble and distress. And he goes on. Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. Time that we have is limited. Things are being wrapped up is what the word says. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. And again, this, this is not ignore your spouses. This is having a total focus on Jesus. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be both holy in both body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this thing I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but 
for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction, that you may give constant attention to Jesus. If you are single, you don't have all the responsibilities that are necessary in a marriage. If you are married and you have no children, you, have, you don't have all those responsibilities. Do you know how much time I spend every week being a chauffeur? I spend a lot of time investing in my relationship with my wife. I spend a lot of time investing in my relationship with my children. My relationship with my wife is godly and it is God-ordained. She is my gift from God, no doubt. My children are gifts from God. I have a godly calling as a father to invest in them. Paul's language here is he's saying time is short. And his perspective, his opinion, how he thinks, he's single. And he is in constant attention to Jesus. And if you're single, again, this is a gift from God. Jesus says this specifically. This is not for everybody. Most people are going to get married. But those who God has given this gift to are able to take their singleness all the time that they have and give constant attention to the Lord. Where those of us who are married and have children, so much of time in life is directed towards those relationships. And again, there's no sin in that at all. Verse 36, but if a man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin. Now this is the language is difficult here. More than likely what is being talked about is a father who has a daughter of marriageable age. So in this culture, dad chooses daughter's spouse, right? So if you have, so it's a, if a father thinks he is behaving improperly towards his daughter, she's past the flower of her youth, which means she's beyond the prime age of being married. And thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. Do what you desire. If you think, you know, in the conversation of the household, she wants to get married, you want her to be married, do what you desire. You do not, dis you do not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. In other words, you're going to withhold your daughter from this marriage. If this is what the Lord is directing you to do, and again, I don't think that this is just some sovereign authority of the father's patriarch in, in all of this. You know, that kind of guy who just hands down the law to his family is always declared as a fool in the word of God. There's wisdom as you walk alongside of your children. You're walking alongside of their personalities, their desires, their context, leading them, serving them as all fathers are supposed to do. We have that instruction elsewhere. Uh, but if you are going to withhold this marriage, you do well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to those, or <laughs> to those, to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier, she is blessed if she remains as she is. According to my judgment, according to my opinion, Paul says, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. And this is one of those sections where we can sit in the logic of the argument. And this is also like just the main conversation in what Paul is addressing is those who are teaching man's wisdom, whether it's a, it's a very 
libertine message that you can do whatever you want to do in Jesus, you're saved, or it's a very closed and ascetic and you have to abide by all these rules to remain in standing with the Lord and remain in standing with the community. And these, you know, again, this is, he's casting all of that out because all of those teachings belong on the outside and we stand on the firm foundation of Jesus and who he is and what it is that he has taught in regards to our relationships with him and our relationships with one another. But again, the overarching emphasis of Corinthians, it's, it's giving this advice of how do we live by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work that Jesus Christ has done in the midst of a culture that is constantly telling us to do other things. It's, what it's trying to do is take us away from the authority of Jesus and cause us to subject ourselves to the authority of another. That's what this language is. That's what's going on in this community. And it's remember the message of the cross. Remember that you are a new lump. You already are unleavened. All of us, though, together... And we're not to bring in the outside behaviors, but as a community of those, we came in this place to worship Jesus this morning. We came in this place not to listen to what Blake has to say, but what does the Bible have to say? And let's discuss this. And that if there are challenges, if there are those who aren't bending the knee to Jesus, there's, there's a right way to have those discussions and those conversations in the body. But it's we don't take what Jesus says as our king and try to apply it to the rest of the culture. The rest of the world is condemned. It already stands underneath the just wrath, condemning wrath of God. But our God sent his son to what? To drink that full cup of wrath. That we no longer have to abide under that wrath. We now get to abide under Jesus as our king. As new, as without sin. In a beautiful community that is to love one another. And help one another. And encourage one another. And, and sharpen one another. And always elevate the name of Jesus. And never elevate anything else. Amen?